Well, good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, I'm director of the Pratt Library, and welcome. And I appreciate you joining us here tonight for another uh, series, a part of our series, Writers Live at the Pratt. And tonight, I must tell you, uh, we're very proud to host one of this country's foremost writers, Nathan McCall. Now, I also, and sometimes I have to confess these things, um, this was a, um, an author and a book that I personally um, appreciated. So when I heard that you were coming, I said, even though I had another meeting and everything from Russia and everything, I said, oh, I have to be here for that. So I'm very pleased that you're here because um, his extraordinary 1994 memoir, Makes Me Want to Holler, was definitely one of those books that spread like wildfire here in Baltimore, but all over the country, and it, I was um, um, one of those people that read it. You either, everyone either read it or was passing it along, and it was just something that you had to read, and you had to read it right away. And many Pratt Library staff members remember how impossible it was to keep copies of the book on the shelves, and a lot of people still have fines from your book. <laughs> And we will forgive them. <laughs> but Mr. McCall's latest book is his first novel, Them. And it has the makings of another must-read book. And although it's set in Atlanta's Fourth Ward, a neighborhood of um, Martin Luther King's um, birth home, it's the theme of gentrification that many of us here in this city and around the country are struggling to come to terms with. Um, you'll hear more about it. It focuses on an African-American printer and renter and his interactions with the white couple that moved next door. Um, it's a book for all of us, black or white, who have looked at others pulling up with a moving van and thought, there goes the neighborhood. Born in Portsmouth, Virginia, Nathan McCall has been a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Washington Post, and other newspapers. And aside from the bestseller Makes Me Want to Holler, his second book, What's Going On, used personal essays to discuss the larger issues of social, cultural, and political tensions affecting the United States, something that we're all um, rethinking in this uh, election season. Salon.com book reviewer Laura Miller wrote, McCall's refusal to conclude his book with a band-aid uh, to the healing power of friendship makes them an exceptionally bracing addition to American novels about race. So we're very pleased to have him here to talk about it with us tonight. Please give a Baltimore welcome to Mr. Nathan McCall. I like that, a Baltimore welcome. <laughs> I'd like to say uh, good evening to everyone, and uh, thank you for inviting me here. I'd like to share an experience with you I had uh, just before this book was published. I was um, in Atlanta where I live, and I had gone to a local mall to shop for some luggage because uh, for the book tour. And um, I was walking through the mall, and there were about three or four guys coming toward me. And so one of the guys stopped me and he said, Hey, are you Nathan McCall? So I said, Yeah. So he said, Oh, man, I've read your books and I love your work. And he said, uh, he said When are you going to come out with another book? And so I said, Well, you know, as a matter of fact, I just finished a project 
and it's going to be published in a couple of weeks. And so he said, yeah. He said, what's it called? I said, them. He said, them. <laughs> so I said, yeah, them. He said, them? So I said, yeah, them. <laughs> so he said, not us, them? <laughs> so I said, us and them. He said, oh, 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 I'm going to have to check it out. I'm going to have to check it out. <laughs> um, I think that, that exchange, I laughed because I think that exchange appropriately captures uh, what this book is about. Uh, them tells the story of Barlow Reed, an African-American whose attempt to buy the house that he rents in a neighborhood in Atlanta called the Old Fourth Ward is complicated by the appearance of whites abandoning the suburbs for the inner city. And when a white couple moves in next door to Barlow, um, he develops a reluctant, complex friendship with Sandy Gilmore, who's the woman of the house. As racial conflicts emerge in the neighborhood and threaten to erupt into violence, Barlow and Sandy begin holding probing and often frustrating conversations over the backyard fence. Eventually, each of them is forced to come to terms with uh, their own long-held assumptions about race. So I'm going to uh, read uh, from a chapter that I think reflects one of the themes of the book, which is the clash in values and uh, perceptions that often emerge when blacks and whites and others find themselves sharing the same community spaces. Uh, let me give you some background for this chapter. This chapter uh, takes place after the white couple, Sean and Sandy Gilmore, um, has been house hunting. They've been house hunting in Atlanta and discovered that the housing in the choice white neighborhoods is too expensive for them. And so uh, they go to their real estate uh, agent and, uh, you know, basically say, look, we can't afford anything we're looking for. And so the agent looks at them and says, well, why not go black? And I said in the book, you know, when he said that, the room got so quiet you could hear a mouse pissing on cotton. <laughs> the, the realtor says to them that housing in black neighborhoods is so cheap that you can get one for the cost of a ham sandwich. So initially, Sean and Sandy are reluctant to look in black neighborhoods. Um, but then when the real estate agent implies that they might not have the stomach for mixing. Sandy, who's very liberal, takes it as a racist affront and um, takes on the challenge. And she says, sure, we have no problem looking uh, at a house in a black neighborhood. 
And so in this chapter, this marks the first time that Sean and Sandy uh, expand their search for a house. And it also marks the point uh, in the story where Barlow lays his eyes on the people who will eventually become his new next-door neighbors. This is chapter 7, but it might be hard for you to follow me because I'm going to skip around a bit. Sean and Sandy Gilmore met at Joe Folks's Midtown Real Estate Office on a Saturday morning. They got in his Cadillac and cruised to the old Fourth Ward. The first house Joe pointed out was a recent sale. The house was impressive. A freshly painted, two-story columned Victorian. Huge bay windows and a wraparound porch. Two flags hung out front. One, a large American flag, somehow struck Joe Folks' out of place. Hanging from another column, the smaller flag was fluorescent, orange, red, yellow, blue, and purple. Over the next half hour, they ran across two other houses decorated with multicolored gay pride flags. A good sign, said Joe. I hear there were two more recent sales around here. He drove on, reciting the history of the old Fourth Ward, emphasizing its ties to Martin Luther King. After a quick strategic pass by the King Center, they swung around to a vacant house on Randolph Street. Joe drove slowly, making sure the Gilmores got a good look at the Atlanta skyline, peeking just above the treetops from where they were. When they pulled in front of the house, Sandy's eyes brightened. It was similar to the one they had just seen. The yard was unkempt and the roof clearly needed repairs, but overall, the structure appeared sound. Joe smiled and toyed with his suit lapel. A good paint job and some cosmetic work and she'll be good as new. Sandy noted the nice long porch facing downtown, providing a fantastic frontal skyline view. This one's a gem said Joe. He leaned over, whispering as though sharing a secret. And the owner is very motivated, actually pressed, to sell. Sandy wasn't sure why, but a wave of guilt passed over her. They got out of the car and scanned the block as a stray dog crept past along the walk. Across the street, several old men set out next to the Auburn Avenue Mini Mart. Off in the distance, Ricky Brown pushed his grocery cart up the block. How safe is the area? asked Sean. Joe beamed. Safer than a fat bank on payday. He ushered them a few steps along the walk to the point where Randolph Street intersected with Auburn Avenue. 
He pointed down Arbor. There's a police precinct less than five blocks away, and the area is crawling with federal park rangers. Now, he dabbed at his due. Let's take a look at this gorgeous house. At the moment, Barlow was lounging out back on the screened-in portion of the porch. He had gone to the mailbox early and gotten his mail. As usual, there were piles and piles of paper from advertisers vying for his attention. One brochure featured the smiling face of some clown running for a city council seat. Then there was a letter addressed personally to Barlow from the president of Chase Manhattan Bank. There was harassment from others, too. Home Depot, Sears, a lighting store, a whole useless, overwhelming pile of paper. When he was done shredding, he drank a beer. He had begun dozing off when three white people appeared around the side of the vacant house next door. At first he thought he might be dreaming. Then he heard the tall, funny-looking man talking loud, pointing this way and that, as though conducting a tour. Whiteys! Barlow ducked indoors and out of sight. He went to the kitchen window and peeked through the blinds. Whiteys! Right next door! The 70-year-old house next door was owned by an old woman named Hattie Phillips. It was a solid, spacious place a once fine Victorian that had fallen into disrepair. When the bills and burdens of living there became too much, Hattie Phillips went to live with her daughter and put the house up for rent. Lacking funds to renovate, she rented it to tenants as it was, with a few doors hanging loosely on squeaky hinges and a leaky roof that required a rain bucket on the kitchen floor. The maintenance problems kept rents low and limited Hattie's tenants to people like Vincent and Irene Benton, the last family to lease before it would be placed on sale. The Bentons were gone. Now there were white people walking around outside the house, peering into windows like nosy ghosts. They headed back to the front where the tall man used a key to open the door. Barlow studied the strangers as they went inside. Hmm. He couldn't count the number of times he'd walked through their neighborhoods and had the cops roll up on him. Hmm. He went to the phone and picked up the receiver, then put it down. He picked it up again and put it down once more. It occurred to him that he had never called the police before. <laughs> police had always been called on him. It felt weird even thinking about it the other way around. He picked up the receiver a third time and dialed. A woman's voice came across the line. Yes, 911 emergency. Barlow said nothing. Hello, 911. 
Is this the police? Yes, do you have an emergency to report? Yeah. Sir, speak quickly if this is an emergency. There's some suspicious looking people walking around the house next door. What are they doing, sir? Look like they're scoping the doors and windows to see if it's locked. What? You need to send somebody. Fast. What's that address, sir? What? The address. Mine or the one next door? (laughs) The house next door. I need the address. I don't know that address. Okay, sir, what's your address? Barlow hesitated. She asking too many fucking questions. (laughs) Sir, I need you to speak quickly. I'm at 1024 Randolph Street. We'll send someone over right away. Barlow hung up. He went back to the porch and peeked around the corner. He spotted the hawk trudging through the pathway. Viola staggered two steps behind carrying a brown paper bag which she cradled like a newborn child. The two drunks disappeared around the corner. Minutes later, the white people came outdoors and went around back again. Barlow withdrew, making sure to keep out of sight. He checked his watch. Ten minutes passed and still no cops. Damn. Meanwhile, Joe Folks pressed on pointing out the features of the house and yard. The Gilmores listened intently, nodding in unison. Barlow peered out the window again. It appeared the white people were preparing to leave. They stood chatting at the corner of the house, partially hidden by the big oak tree. Barlow rushed to the front window and peeked outside. Still no sign of cops. He returned to the rear window and peered some more, then rushed back to the living room. He paced back and forth, antsy, trying to decide what to do. He concentrated hard. For the first time in his life, he actually wanted the police to show up somewhere. He went back and dialed again. Yes, 911. I called about burglars damn near half hour ago. Yes, sir. Are you at 1024 Randolph? That's right. You already got that information. His voice was tight, hostile. Well, sir, y'all gonna mess around and let them people get away. Please, sir, we've already sent a car. Where they at then? Where they at? He was shouting now. Sir, they should be there any minute now. Barlow slammed down the phone and growled. Caesar. Outside, the white people strolled casually toward Joe Folks' car. Finally, a police cruiser pulled in front of the house. Barlow peeked from behind the living room blinds as two officers approached the, the trio. The officers tipped their hats. We got a call about prowlers. Joe Folks stepped forward, smiling. Prowlers? I'm... A realtor. These are my clients, and I'm showing this house. 
He wore a natty, double-breasted suit, a silk wool blend, Hugo Boss. As usual, his hair was meticulously teased. One cop smiled apologetic and glanced at his partner. Sorry. He tipped his hat again. Have a good day. Barlow watched the policeman leave. Likewise, the Gilmores climbed in Joe Folks' shiny Cadillac and disappeared. When the cars glided out of sight, Barlow left the window. He flopped down hard on the couch and sat staring emptily into space. Caesar. He picked up a glass from the coffee table and shattered it against the wall. On the drive back to his office, Joe Folks stopped at a light and turned to Sean, who was seated beside him. Isn't that house a dandy? Yeah, nice. Sean was surprised at how much he liked the house. And it has more space than the place we're in. Oddly, he thought of Sandy's father. The old man would have conniptions if he were here. Sandy was lost in her own thoughts about landscape ideas and furniture placement. Her enmity toward Joe had receded some. Joe sensed he had the Gilmores hooked. He had them wiggling like striped bass on a bamboo rod. Now it was time to reel them in. It will officially go on the market in another week or so. We're listing it. So you've got a chance to beat the rush. Better get it now, though. This baby won't last long. He didn't really have to work the sale. Sandy had already made up her mind. Without saying it in front of Joe, she knew they wanted that house. The spacious rooms and the skyline view were clearly major pluses. But just as impressive was the strong sense of community there. Imagine, someone actually cared enough to call the cops. (laughs) That settled it for her. Sean and Sandy were moving to the old fourth ward. Thank you.